We are Gretchen Peterson and Vanessa Kanaka-Wetzel. And we're here to talk to you first about a map called the Babylonian Map of the World, which is also called the Imago Mundi. And it is pretty cool because it's one of the first maps that we know of that we can actually decipher, that we can understand what it says on it. It has cuneiform script labels um, made in the sixth century BC. Apparently there was actually a tablet made earlier than this with the same things on it. And this was actually a copy, but the earlier one or other earlier copies don't exist. Um, At least they don't exist now. So it's actually really small and fits in the palm of your hand and basically depicts Babylonia as a city, which is shown in this little rectangle in the middle of a perfect circle. And the circle, I guess, represents the bitter river or the ocean. I also thought it was really interesting that it included other cities um, as circles and dots. Um, at least I thought that was interesting because I just was like, oh, cool. People still thought of, of generalizing cities in, as dots way back in 500, 700 BC, and that hasn't changed much. And of course that makes sense reference wise, but they could have still depicted it with other shapes or other symbology. So I just thought that was really interesting too. Um, and the cities are kind of located close to the edge of the circle um, the inner circle that represents earth, <laughs> the world. <laughs> yeah, I feel like modern cartographers love the circle and the dot as well. We love to, you know, city dots is a kind of a thing for modern maps. Um, and here we've basically are just continuing one long tradition of map making. By the way, we should mention that you can find all of these maps on Wikipedia that we're going to talk about today. This particular one is at the British Museum, so you can see it on the British Museum website where there's a lot more information than Wikipedia has on it. Um, And also a zoomable map that is really interesting. But anyway, the other thing that's on this map is these triangle things that kind of come off the outside of the ocean. (laughs) And... You know, I guess they sort of represent eight outlying regions and people have wondered if they're depicted as mountains. And I think that's just because we depict mountains as triangles today, you know, modern cartographers. And so we think, oh, they're they're sort of imagining these outlying regions as mountains. But I'm not sure anybody could actually say for sure that that's what they were thinking. Yeah, I also, um, in researching this map, I it was interesting. Of course, no one really knows fully what they were trying to depict, but I thought it was interesting that um, people who created this were adhering to some Mesopotamian cartographic conventions. I guess um, often geometric shapes were used to represent topographic features. So even that, that there was some kind of standardization of cartography and kind of repetition within um, particular cultures was great to learn um, just because, you know, there's just so many different ways of making maps and depicting map depicting things on maps even today. Uh, having that kind of standard standardization historically really is just interesting to be aware of as well. Uh, I also thought it was cool that um, at least what I read and I, I couldn't find too much information on it Um, was that this map also kind of represents some kind of mythology and it's mixing reality and mythology into one. And um, 
kind of bringing the cosmos in. So Babylon is the center of the universe as well. That to me was cool. And it's um, it seemed that there may have been some mythical beasts um, kind of assumed to live in some of these spaces, uh, which related a lot to maps that I've researched from the 1500s and the 1400s that have these really interesting map monsters in the oceans or on land. So in terms of continuity across history of monsters being included on maps, that was cool to learn about. (laughs) What is your favorite monster on a map? Oh, yeah. Um, I always forget. I'm so I'm really, really terrible with names. So I don't remember what it's called. But there's a map monster that kind of looks like it's a mix between a unicorn and a mermaid. Um, And I, I don't know. Have you seen that kind? Oh, it looks like the bottom half is kind of like a mermaid, but then the front half half is like a horse and then it has like a horn. And I just think it's really cool looking. (laughs) Nice. Nice. I like that we were making things up all along during history, you know, when we we just have such a great imagination as a species. So, you know, I taught this cartography workshop once where I still remember to this day that we were hand drawing maps just just for fun, you know, for a little exercise. And somebody drew a map of the monsters of North America. And so there was the Sasquatch and where you might find the Sasquatch and all these other things depicted on there. It was fantastic. That would be really interesting. Yeah, I don't know enough of our monster mythology as well. Like, what is it, Chupacabra? in the southwest United States is that a thing (laughs) I have no idea what it looks like but I know I've heard about it and there's like a similar thing to Chupacabra in Chile Um, I'm half Chilean and so I've heard I've like seen people talk about it and share imagery of that too which is pretty funny Um, it's funny that you said hand-drawn maps because I think for a lot of people uh, hand-drawn kind of evokes you know using your hands and truly drawing it and there are so many people that have always asked me if I draw maps by hand um, or ask what are the hand drop drawn maps I've made and I recently had someone ask me last week that very question and usually my answer is well I I could draw maps by hand in uh, you know for fun um, and not really for a client or a customer unless they specifically asked for that, but I do everything on screen. But they really meant like, no, I mean, it's hand-drawn because if it's custom, it's hand-drawn. And that was their interpretation of it. Like it was hand-drawn for them because it was custom and not built from some automatic space. Um, But they did have some like, they had like some awareness of map making. So, and they did a lot of stuff through automated processes. So it kind of made me reconsider, like, did I answer the question correctly when every other person has asked me, do I make hand-drawn maps? (laughs) I think that is so interesting because I feel like it's a new interpretation of the phrase hand-drawn map. And it's because we're so used to Google Maps or, um, you know, a staple, say, map box base map that we've seen a lot of versus something that's quite custom that we made for a particular purpose on a particular day. Yeah, it's kind of like I thought about it and I was like, it really does make sense because when people 
discuss hand-drawn maps, it's really talking about the customization. And he said, yeah, I mean, you made all these custom choices with the maps that you talked about when I told him some stuff I'd worked on. He said, you work so much on the labels or making sure I don't know, border lines looked a very particular way or adding texture to terrain. And you made a lot of choices for all of that. And that's really custom and wasn't automatic, automated. So that means it was hand-drawn. And yeah, I guess it's kind of similar to how the save icon is still a floppy disk, even though <laughs> we like don't use a floppy disk anymore. <laughs> Super good point. Yeah, that is so funny. Um, well, speaking of imaginary things on the map, I thought it was really interesting that the Brit British Museum, if you read what they say about the Babylonian map of the world, they specifically point out that some of the cities are in the wrong place. They specifically point out that the distances aren't consistent. And I think come on people, this is the sixth century BC, you know, it's the time when Anaximander was like the first philosopher to write things down. Um, it's the time of Nebuchadnezzar II, who later, you know, he was the king of, the, of Babylon. He later featured in the Bible. I mean, this was a long time ago. So I think it's, it's funny that they think to note that some of the cities are in the wrong place. Yeah, that is pretty funny. I, I didn't, I mean, I guess I kind of assumed things weren't in the, their exact location also because it was a small circle <laughs> on a small tablet, but I, I read about it once. I, I have the source somewhere. I, I can share it later with you, Gretchen, but I was reading about this um, piece and it said that while it wasn't an accurate, exact accurate representation, it was very much an accurate representation of the political powers of the first millennium of Mesopotamia because of showcasing very particular cities and kind of showing what really mattered in their perspective. And, you know, putting the square around Babylon also helped to highlight it and kind of bring it to the foreground more so than the circular cities and also the fact that it was centered, um, which I thought was really interesting too, that it was, you know, showing some kind of accurate, accurate representation of the political space. Um, and that's still, you know, an accurate spatial map in a way because you get to have kind of some kind of insight of what people really believed was important through their visual depiction. True, yeah. Um, also, something else I noticed is that if you look at some of the pictures, not the British Museum one, but the one on the Wikipedia, you'll see that it says 92687 and sort of in the middle on the left. And I think that not many people know this, but the Babylonians basically invented the Sharpie. So that's where that came from. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God, I didn't tell you I was going to make dumb jokes during this, but um, <laughs> I can't believe they wrote those numbers on the front. <laughs> Can you imagine? Here's this historic artifact from the sixth century BC. Let's write some numbers on oh it. Oh God. And did they like Photoshop it out of the example? <laughs> I. I'm pretty sure they photoshopped yeah, it. Yeah, because I was yeah. going to say that, like, I have the image in the stock that I'm referencing, and it definitely doesn't have it. But I, I was like, this is a good image of it, so I won't look for other ones. <laughs> yeah, look at the one on Wikipedia. There's a number written across oh, it. It's gosh. pretty ridiculous. Oh, no, yeah. that's a bummer. I know. <laughs> anyway. Um, 
that hole in the center of the circle, I thought it was one leg of a compass mm. and they used it to make the circle, but it's not, it's called a firing hole. I guess it was something to do with firing the clay. Oh yeah, I guess that makes sense. Like kind of releasing air pressure. I learned about that once upon a time. My mom, she does a lot of clay work, but don't quote me, I don't actually know. Okay, <laughs> cool. Um, also, okay, one, well, I have one last thing to say, which is that when I looked at this, I thought to myself, this is like the first instance of a story map because there's all this text at the top and then there's this map. And so they felt like they really needed to explain what was on there. And to those people who don't know, story maps are a new modern invention and you see them in like news articles all the time. So it's just a map that accompanies uh, a lot of text or it could just be on its own um, as well where you're just trying to tell a story through maps and maybe it zooms around as you scroll through the text or uh, hits different locations uh, sort of dynamically. And anyway, I felt like this was a little bit reminiscent of our modern story maps. Yeah, I think that's a good thing to point out that even like they're they're using them in the same way to, as reference and to help, you know, explain things. Um, it's always easier to, well, for me, it's always easier to have visuals. There's plenty, there's like, I was just, so I've been building a lot of Ikea furniture lately, <laughs> which is only visuals, which I have to say is the, is the opposite problem. It needs some text. But I was uh, talking to my boyfriend about how uh, there are some things that only include text for explanations and how I was also equally annoyed by those just because I equally didn't understand them. So for some stuff, you just need a little bit of both, some textual explanation and a nice map or graphic to go alongside it. Sorry, Ikea, I do like some of the furniture I've gotten. <laughs> Shout out to Ikea. All right. Cool. Um, next, we're going to talk about TNO maps, which are uh, super interesting and also happen to showcase a circular sort of central piece to the map. Um, but before uh, fully really explaining what TNO maps are, I also wanted to just kind of talk about the progression of some of the history of mapping, um, in particular that uh, in early um, AD, uh, like zero, between 100 and 170 AD, uh, Ptolemy, um, while uh, he was a he was a philosopher, as many may know. He uh, he used latitude and longitude to show that um, Earth was in fact round and. Showed that it wasn't flat, just like many other uh, philosophers at the time. He published a book called Geography, um, which was really filled with a lot of amazing maps. And the first part of it discussed data and methods that he used to create his maps and, you know, kind of show how he viewed the world and so also so others could do it. So he and other philosophers at that time, um, before 170 AD, that's like when he died. So well before that, um, he all agreed that the earth was round, but <laughs> TNO maps uh, didn't, they just kind of ignored all this research and uh, movement and progression that had happened um, so early on <laughs> in our history. And during medieval times in Europe, um, everyone, believed Earth was flat, despite all that research and math and such that um, existed. And uh, at the time, 
Uh, many maps were these TNO maps. And we also have um, a particular uh, example of a TNO map, and that's the Hereford Mapamundi map. And these TNO maps were uh, often, I mean, they're pretty religious uh, in, in their content as well. Um, and they showed the earth as divided into three different sides um, and they're circular, as I noted before. And the upper left quadrant would show Europe. Um, the lower left quadrant would show Africa. And then the uh, right side um, would show Asia in some way. And Asia usually would be twice the size of um, Europe or twice the size of Africa. And all of three of these continents um, were the only things that were shown on the TNO maps. Uh, other parts of the world weren't shown. And they also were not um, geographically accurate. Uh, it kind of, uh, that's kind of the point of the TNO concept. Um, the T part would be uh, made up of bodies of water. The Mediterranean Sea and the Nile River were often the most showcased, but they usually were. Uh, they were bodies of water that were significant in um, Christian religion. Um, and in the center of the map, uh, Jerusalem was usually depicted. Um, and I I just, while looking into TNO maps, while also looking at Babylonian maps, I thought this was cool because beyond the circular sort of relationship, there also is this mixture of reality alongside belief systems um, because there's this religious depictions of the world. Um, and that is what Babylonian maps were doing as well, kind of showing the mythological alongside reality. Um, and uh, also I wanted to note uh, that uh, what is also interesting is that Asia was on the east and because the sun rises in the east, um, Tino maps also kind of depicted the Garden of Eden, Eden in Asia uh, just because of where the sun rises. So I thought that was pretty interesting. And that is from, uh, oh gosh, I did not write the year down. Uh, 1300. <laughs> that's from the 1300s. Um, and that's one of the most famous um, versions of it, also probably because it um, has survived and is so detailed. It's got a lot of intricate de detail and it's like a cool sort of interesting shape as well um, in terms of the paper parchments that it's on. It's like a triangular on the top. Um, yeah, it's, it's big and it's on vellum, which is animal skin. And this particular piece also is really interesting just because it, um, I mean, it also survived time, but it also survived like bombing of war. Um, so it's nice that we have this piece. Uh, and of course, um, besides just history and time destroying so many things, uh, the kind of stuff that happens with conflict um, with the world is how we often lose this kind of stuff. And I also, on that note, I guess it's also important to say that even uh, what Gretchen said earlier about Babylonian maps and how they're one of the, the they are like the, the, the physical recording, recorded maps that we actually can see and touch. Um, it's, they're in stone, which is why we know of them. Uh, probably important to note that of course, people were probably making some kind of map beforehand, but it probably was on material that easily was destroyed or, you know, just quickly was um, smoothed away, like in the dirt or something like that. For sure. I'm, you know, I'm going to uh, uh, sort of uh, jump ahead to our next map, but well, okay. I will try not to jump ahead to our next map, but I was thinking about wampum 
which is these beaded necklaces that the Native Americans would trade, but they also had to do with maps in the sense that beads would represent certain locations along a path. And so they'd be placed in the order in which you would come to those locations. I just think these maps are really interesting to highlight uh, because they're such an interesting visual and because I think it's something that people often see when they when they talk about old maps, even though they don't necessarily know um, what it is. And because it's circular, you may not necessarily realize like how everything's kind of situated in a weird location. Um, even uh, there's some that aren't exact circles as well. Um, like Mercator, who's a really well known cartographer in the history of cartography. Like he made the Mercator projection, which now has been translated to be used on online maps like Google. Um, he like also made a sort of like TNO map, but it wasn't an exact circle and was kind of more broken apart. Um, but it still had the sort same sort of relationship where Europe and where Africa and where Asia where it was. So I, yeah, just like the religious sort of significance in mapping uh, in multiple um, cultures and geographies is always, of course, going to matter because culture and religion sometimes go hand in hand. Um, but yeah, I think it, it'd be, it's interesting to move on to the next example um, that we're talking about uh, for many reasons. Um, I think it's interesting because it is one of the very few maps to have survived. I'm talking about survival of maps and things. Um, in, but this is a different reason of survival. It's just that uh, people who took over the colonizers, they saw no reason to save maps or in some cases destroyed them. Um, because there was a lot of destruction of uh, Native American spaces and places and often just use their knowledge to make their own maps. Um, so this is in particular is great because it, it is a surviving map from the colonial period. And uh, it doesn't, it again, doesn't show exact geographic accuracy and it shows some relationships and it uses a lot of squares and circles, which kind of is similar to what the Babylonian map was showing. And just to just to pause right there, I just wanted to introduce that the next map that we're talking about is called the Catawba deerskin map. And you can find this one if you do a search for, uh, you know, just do a Google search and you'll be able to find a, a copy of this map. Yeah, it's cool because um, so this particular map was um, drawn in order to show relationships um, that the Native Americans had with the European colonizers for trade specifically. Um, so it was a very utilitarian use of a map and it didn't show exact spatial accuracy very intentionally. It was just showing sort of relationships, which again, in a way kind of relates to the previous two maps. Um, they were showing some kind of cultural relationship, um, significant sort of you know community uh, space um, and utilized in a very meaningful way. Yeah, I've heard of it referred to as a worldview rather than a map of the world. Um, all of these maps I think could fit under that, uh, that description of a worldview, which is more religious or more just where things are rather than navigationally speaking, um, you know, not the exact placement, but sort of having to do with what your view of your world is. Yeah, yeah, that is, yeah, I probably have heard that term before and forgot. <laughs> and that is the perfect description for it. Um, or like in this case, for the 
kind of a map. Um, it's also kind of a mental map. Um, my mental maps are always spatially inaccurate when I draw them out. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, if you think about subway maps or bus maps, right, they don't have, um, uh, they lack a consistent scale, right? But that's on purpose. Uh, we also call them diagrammatic maps. Um, so mass transit is an example. Um, obviously this Catawba map is also an example because it shows, I guess, um, I wanna say 13 Native American nations, I should say, um, in circles. And then there are two colonial settlements that are also depicted and those are depicted with straight lines. I thought that was really interesting that they, yeah, the circles versus the straight lines. Oh, I was, I was gonna say, I thought that was interesting too. And I, I just automatically was like, it's kind of like organic versus like, I mean, today, organic versus man-made in a way. And it kind of made me sit back and think a little. European settlers would have come and just created so many straight edge buildings, like compared to what uh, Native Americans typically would make, I think. And that would be such an automatic sort of translation of the houses. That is an interesting point um, that I hadn't thought of. Oh, I also thought about those paths that are shown on there, though. Um, and apparently that was... Um, obviously they're showing the communications between the tribes as well as the, the uh, colonial settler settlements. And the, so it's essentially a very, I mean, it's a very simple map, um, but obviously again, shows their worldview. What was important for this map? I think the history of this particular map was the a tribe gave it to one of the leaders of South Carolina. Uh, Francis Nicholas, the colonial governor of South Carolina around 1721. Yeah, so, you know, it was given to him to communicate trade relationships is what, um, what I was reading about this particular map. And I feel like many, many people who I talk to who don't work with maps on a daily basis, their sort of default thinking about maps is that they show you how to get from point A to point B. Um, they don't, is, so, but maps are so much more than that, right? We have thematic maps. We have maps that show the ski terrain. We have, you know, maps that show where, which countries are vaccinating the most, which, um, you know, we have political maps. Uh, so there's all kinds of different maps. And I feel like this trade route map, it's not an exact depiction of where each settlement is or where each native settlement is, um, but it sort of communicates spatially where those routes are. Yeah, it really does. I also just, um, I forgot to look at, you know, there's some illustration here, um, some symbology. And when I looked at the map before, I really was focused on just, you know, seeing how everything related um, across the map with the lines and connections. And I just zoomed into the map and I was like, oh, like these, this, it just is like some beautiful symbology. And I, in the lower left hand side, there's just um, a human and an animal that looks like a deer and it's labeled that's where the Indian hunting grounds are. And then that makes me curious about what the middle right illustration is. Um, it looks like 
I mean, it looks like a person. Um, they didn't label that one, so I'm not sure what it might be. But I mean, it could be so many things. And that just kind of made me sad too, just thinking about how, of course, this tribe probably had so many consistent ways of symbolizing things. And it isn't described on this map. Um, and if it was only a cartographic symbology and not something that they repeated, that's probably lost. Well, right. Whoever drew this had a definite meaning behind those symbols and things. And we don't, I guess we don't know what they are today. Um, at least I haven't seen any depiction. I was wondering what the object was on the lower left. It looks like an umbrella. Yeah, it was on the <laughs> too. You know, so it's, yeah, too bad we don't have all of the information that we need on, on this particular map. And, you know, the Native Americans have actually had a very long history of map making, but very few of those maps have survived. And one of the reasons that we have this one today is because it was given by His Royal Highness George Prince of Wales. Yeah, so it really was saved because it was shipped to Europe instead of saving in the U.S., which is also interesting to think about. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so that, I mean, those are three sort of very different historical maps of different parts, you know, of, of the world, considering this was the, the New World or the colonial settlements. Um, and... You know, they all, I mean, obviously they all have symbols. I mean, circles, we love circles as cartographers um, and paths. Oh my goodness, we love to show routes. I mean, <laughs> this, this Catawba map is, maybe this is the first instance of cased road lines. I don't know. Uh, we call them cased roads uh, today. Yeah. Uh, where we don't show just a middle line, we show the outer edges. So that's interesting to me anyway. Yeah, that is interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Um, you know, and also I think that it humbles me to know how some of these early cartographers, you know, how much they actually knew about their surrounding. I mean, I know that there are some, you know, inaccuracies and inconsistencies in distance, but we have always needed to know what's around us and we've always needed to share that information with others. And I think these three really exemplify that. Yeah, I agree. Um, I really enjoyed uh, diving deeply into these maps and um, uh, we didn't talk about it in earlier, but when Gretchen reached out to me uh, to do this podcast with her, it just made me excited to have a really particular reason to actively get to intimately know different maps um, since most of my day-to-day -day now is just making maps instead of researching other maps so it's like pretty fun to learn a lot about them and to get to share them with folks and what we interpret things and what we think is interesting anyway um, but it also would be great for folks to let us know what you found interesting um, feel free to send us an email or shoot us a tweet and tell us what you discover or other maps as well that's great. Thank you. Um, yes. Yeah, so bye for now. Bye.